Welcome to Sustainable Minds, exploring the interplay of corporate brand, core beliefs, and ESG. Brought to you by Baker. In every episode, we'll investigate how purpose, vision, and values can guide your company's sustainability actions, behaviors, and mindsets. And we'll discuss their impact with the help of ESG-focused guests from around the globe. I'm your host, Rocket. And I'm your host, Gary. Let's get started. Good morning, Richard. Good morning, Gary. Yes. (laughs) Welcome to Sustainable Minds. Thank you. Happy to be here. Our pleasure. Today, we're speaking with Richard Peterson. Richard's the head of ESG Enterprise Solutions Strategy for Capital Markets at FIS, a world-renowned financial services technology leader. FIS is passionate about helping businesses and communities thrive by advancing the way the world pays, banks, and invests. Prior to joining FIS, Richard was the director at Moody's Analytics, a financial services company that provides economic research regarding risk, performance, and financial modeling, as well as consulting, training, and software services. Richard held positions in investment banking at J.P. Morgan, Guggenheim Capital Markets, ABN, AMRO, and Citigroup. He holds a Master's of Business Administration in Finance and Economics from the University of Chicago and a Bachelor of Business Administration in Finance from Emory University. Welcome to Sustainable Minds. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Our pleasure. Well, I want to learn a little bit more about FIS. In your words, I was on the website and I thought it was really kind of intriguing and interesting and found a lot of exciting stuff on that thing. As I said, on the website, it says, we lift economies and communities by advancing the way the world pays, banks, and invests. Kind of expound on that and tell us what this company does. Yeah. So I think FIS is probably one of the largest companies that many folks have not heard of. We are a large fintech. I work in the capital market side of the business, but there are three sides. There's the payment side, which is formerly world pay acquisition. And then there's the banking side and the capital markets and pays, banks, and invests. (laughs) And essentially the three go hand in hand, but we have a number of different solutions across the stack, right? So it just depends on sort of your focus. It depends on where your workflow takes you. FIS can really sort of help you to enable best practices amongst all of the industry peers. So first and foremost, we're a financial technology firm. So we enable technology through software solutions, through different platforms, and through different workflows. And we like to customize it towards our clients' needs. So wherever that may be, if you're in the front office and you're a portfolio manager and you need solutions on management of your portfolio and making decisions, we have that, right? If you are in the middle office or in the back office and looking at compliance or reporting, we have a number of different solutions that do that. So it's really hard to say everything that FIS does, but a simple example that a lot of folks may not notice is if you go out there and you swipe your credit card at a payment terminal, in many cases, WorldPay is behind those payments. So we're kind of injected into everything out there. And every day. (laughs) And every day, exactly. So now you're the head of ESG Enterprise Solution Strategy for Capital Markets. Describe that role. What does that really mean? What the hell do you do? (laughs) Good question. No, it's somewhat of a new role. 
was really sort of created due to the intense growth and scrutiny that ESG as an industry is becoming. So it's something that I sort of happily fell into in the sense that my previous experience has been, as you mentioned, investment banking and sort of traditional capital markets. ESG was something that became interesting to me upon joining FIS. I began to get more involved with what we had was a steering committee that was focused on ESG and sort of sustainable investing. It piqued my interest. I started to learn more about it. I slowly became somewhat of a subject matter expert and just started getting involved in the industry. As you know, there's lots of conferences and speaking opportunities and panels. And I started getting involved with some of those, meeting some of my peers at at different places and learning more and more, right? And the industry has been progressing over the last few years to the point now where it really, it behooves almost every company to sort of integrate ESG into their their strategy, their thinking, their approach across no matter what they're doing, um, to be honest. And so once we kind of realized the importance and the growing importance of this industry is where I was kind of tapped on the shoulder and asked if I'd like to sort of spearhead this for FIS and for the capital markets. And uh, it was something I very much look forward to and I'm truly enjoying, right? Especially because it's a bit more of a kind of an industry that's in that growth mode where you're not really sure where it's all going. And there is no real prescribed way of doing a lot of the things that you're going to need to be doing. And so it's a lot of sort of creativity on top of sort of the way things are kind of coming together from a regulatory perspective. But yeah, that's kind of the genesis of the role that I'm in. And it also feeds into a lot of other very important initiatives like data and AI and machine learning and all of the things that are on everyone's minds these days. So yeah, it's exciting. Exactly. Well, one of the things, you know, can you share with us some of the best practices regarding integrating ESG data, metrics, analytics into the capital markets? Yeah. So Rocket, that's the tough one, right? That's the nut that everyone's trying to crack. Best practices really aren't there yet. I would say that because this industry is so new, because everyone is really just trying to figure out what are these best practices or what are we all going to sort of rally behind, right? For a standardized metric or a way of calculating, a way of reporting. We're seeing a lot of good examples of it, but I wouldn't say, in my opinion, that there is any sort of distinct, this is the way you should do it, right? As evidenced by these peers or these factors, et cetera. So what I'm sort of advising my clients right now, because I'm getting these questions all the time, right? Is we can work with you. We can help you to understand sort of what others are focused on and sort of the ways in which they've incorporated ESG data, analytics, reporting, benchmarking, you name it, right? We can give you some of those best practices from what we've seen, but I wouldn't necessarily, and you can probably see my air quotes, call it a best practice because everyone's figuring out the best way to do it right now and what works for them, right? So as a firm, what I'm trying to do is be as agnostic as possible to the partners that we're working with, to the companies that we are looking to integrate into our platform in some way, because right now, what we want to do is build it towards certain use cases and not necessarily towards the prescribed way of doing it, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, it does make sense because we often look at others and how we've maybe perceived it to be a successful approach or formula and it's relevant. And so that could be a starting spot. It is. And, and I think it's going to grow, right? I mean, and I view, right, the way this kind of works, right, I liken it to 
beginnings of financial reporting, right? Before GAAP, before IFRS, before all of the standardized ways that we're so used to now getting a balance sheet, income statement, cash flow statement. I think there's going to be, and there will be, there already is initiatives, right? That's going to push towards the standardization of what we report, how we collect it. So you can actually compare apples to apples when you're looking at these things. And ESG is hard because as you know, right, there are so many different data types, different ways of collecting data, different ways of reporting on that data. We have to get towards a more standardized approach before we can really just have a way of looking at one company versus another. And there are a lot of good ways of doing it currently. I mean, there's a lot of good data providers out there that have their methodology and have ways of sifting through and cutting through the data to try to standardize this in some way. But in a lot of ways too, you're seeing a lot of companies that are putting their sustainability reports out or or spinning things in a marketing type of way that may or may not be applicable to in an analytic. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's for some greenwashing is kind of a really a hard thing not to do. What I find interesting is the companies, their basic philosophy or mindset, whether this is a risk mitigation strategy or whether this is a value creation strategy. And I think those that can approach it from a value creation and how this integrates with your business strategy, they're going to do pretty well at the end of the day. Completely agree. I think it's both, to be honest, right? Because you have to think about FIS as an example, right? Our headquarters are in Jacksonville, Florida. It obviously behooves an analyst to think about climate change and sort of how that affects bad weather patterns that go through the state of Florida. It's something that's never going to change, right? No matter what you call it, it's sustainable investing, ESG, it really doesn't matter. An analyst is always going to look at the frequency of hurricanes hitting Florida, right? So that's the risk part of it. But then the social aspect, value creation, giving back part of it. I mean, there's been numerous studies out there that show that companies that incorporate ESG, relevant ESG information metrics into their strategy. So they're taking a holistic approach to their business and they're thinking about all of the different ways in which these metrics or these you know, measurable things are affecting or can affect their business strategy. And they're making changes accordingly, or they're preparing for it accordingly. These businesses are going to be well-prepared to weather any type of storm, not just an actual literal storm, but an economic downturn, any sort of change in consumer behavior or patterns, right? They are thinking more strategically towards how to manage their business, and ESG is giving them a reason and a way to do that. And so, yeah, they're going to be better prepared, and thus they're going to be better performing at the end of the day. I wonder about the standardization being so important and that there's so many different tools out there that all spin it and do it and measure it different ways. But once it becomes such every day where people are using tools like software tools and technology to really get the information more in real time and more quickly, how right now, the way that different asset managers, and I guess banks do for financing and giving loans and issuing bonds and things like that, they all have their spin, which they think gives them a competitive advantage. I mean, the way that 
BlackRock evaluates and looks for ESG in different in companies is different than maybe someone else. And so how in the end, when you have this standardization, it helps people know what the real score is within companies, but where's that balance with still having a different competitive proprietary way of getting at the ESG? I think this is something that is always going to be the case, right? We're not looking to take away, by standardizing something, you're not looking to take away the secret sauce of BlackRock or any asset manager in that way. What you're looking to do is sort of come up with the accepted sort of groundwork, the accepted way of reporting that I can look at the same number at one place that I know that someone else is looking at that same number and it's accepted in the sense that it was calculated in a way that we understand. It's auditable, it's transparent, it's reportable in such a way that we can consume it, right? So we have the basic building blocks, just like you get your balance sheet and income statement from a company, and that's their reported earnings for that quarter. And now every analyst will take that and have their own way, creative ways of manipulating that information to kind of come up with a thesis that they can support, whether it's something that's good or something that's bad, right? But we have to have those building blocks and we have to agree on those building blocks that they're all the same, right? And if it's not the same, then we're all starting from different points, right? And we can go to completely different endpoints. And a good example of this would be if you take a company like Tesla and you look at the rating at some of these rating agencies for ESG for any company, but Tesla's a good one, right? You can see that some of them will rate it very, very highly because it scores very well according to their methodology. And then others will rate it very poorly because their methodology is different. Yet it's the same company, right? And supposedly in the same data, right? But a different methodology. So I think we're kind of in the beginnings of how this is going to get towards a more standardized approach. But there are many organizations out there that have put out guidelines and will continue to do so. Europe is a leader in the space with a number of different regulatory bodies that are sort of putting out the way in which things should be calculated, how they should be reported, and a lot of different rules. And companies out there are already choosing to report and have been reporting for a number of years according to those standards. The U.S. is coming up. They're waking up, finally. (laughs) The SEC is due to put out their final guidance for climate risk modeling. They've put out other reports for comment on marketing of green funds and sustainable funds, et cetera. So I think you're going to get more and more push towards standardization from regulation. And that's going to be coming shortly this year and next year. We work with a lot of management CEOs. Some of them really seem to be, you have to drag them to get, to reveal that, have that transparency in some of the ESG categories. It's not required as of yet. That's why. And And, uh, yeah. yeah. But I guess there's, they better catch up because they're already, whether they know it or not, being punished for that as far as people perceiving that company to have the right positioning for the future. Exactly right. I mean, I think that investors and stakeholders in all companies and the SEC proposed rule actually affects all listed companies. So every public company out there is going to have to report on their ESG strategy, their ESG metrics, track them, report on them. It's something that's going to be demanded by all investors, by all stakeholders. 
it's going to be something that everyone accepts, right? And so I think right now, if you're CEO of a company and you're just kind of putting your head in the sand for this, at some point, you're just going to have to take it out and look up because it's not going to be possible anymore, right? It's going to be a requirement. So it's best to just kind of go with it, right? And sort of politics out of it, take all the rhetoric that the spin that people are trying to do. In my opinion, this is really not a tree hugging exercise, right? This is an exercise in prudent management of risk, prudent understanding of everything that surrounds your company and how you affect the community and the world around you. And that's something you should be thinking about as a good business practice anyways, regardless. What I'd like to see is we have some clients that are owned by private equity. And these huge private equity companies are insisting that they develop strategies around sustainability and ESG and operate themselves. Now, they're probably doing it because they want some sort of exit strategy with these companies and make sure they're aligned. But that's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, I'm going to change a little bit here because I came across the uh, 2023 FIS Global Innovation Report. And it said the financial world is shaken to its core. And it identified four innovation trends that uh, have the potential to upend business models, posing a real change for the financial service providers. So there's, and I read four things, and then I found the fifth thing. If you can, I would love just for you just to describe each one of these a little bit. One's embedded finance, because I had to look these things up. I didn't know what most are. One is embedded finance. I think cryptocurrencies, but maybe most people think that is a falling trend, but I'm thinking that's here to say, what's decentralized finance and how does the metaverse play into the world of financial services? Yeah, I mean, these are all very interesting trends that I think are kind of pervasive in our system right now. I would actually add AI machine learning to that. I think for me, the data management portion of that and sort of the transformative nature of it would put it probably number one on my list just from the potential, right? I don't know if you've been following all of the chat GBT and sort of generative AI types of things. It's hard not to. Yeah, I can't avoid it. Yeah, in my view, that's going to be one of the biggest transformative technologies for all of us, but also specifically within financial technology, because the think of it in a, as a way of having your Star Trek computer, but in real life, right, where you can just speak to the computer and ask it for something. Now, people are speaking to it and asking it crazy questions out there, and that's what you're reading. But from the actual business perspective, right, if I can speak to something type something in and say, hey, I want an ESG, especially with all these disparate data sets, right? Can you build me a dashboard that consists of carbon net zero metrics for these particular companies in this particular industry, but that also have adversity score of X and have created Y for their community, right? You can make these really complex sort of queries and not have to have someone programming or coding it in the background to make that work. That's what generative AI can do potentially in our space, right? Which is make a lot of these complex things a hell of a lot easier and also quicker to market to get you to an insight, right? So if I'm a portfolio manager and I think that maybe there's correlation between this and something else, right? These are massive data sets. The amount of 
time it would take for someone to figure out how to set that up and how to build it, let alone how to get you the answer that you potentially want, would take a lot of time. And AI and machine learning really just cuts that time down by huge margin, right? And there's always going to be a need for people. There's always going to be a need for a way of helping it understand what we're looking for. But in my view, that's probably one of the most transformational things going on. But back to your original question, right? Like what is embedded finance? What are some of these things that are affecting things, right? Embedded finance is really sort of, you think about it as a, you go to a supermarket and they give you loyalty card, right? And the loyalty card links to your information and gives you points or gives you discounts or whatever it might be, right? This is embedded finance. You go and you take your flight and you get your air miles, right? Now, suddenly you can use your air miles to purchase another ticket or whatever, right? That has value, right? These are examples of embedded finance in the sense that it's a non-financial thing, but yet at the end of the day, it is, right? These air miles, these discounts, they all have value. The information they gather have value and they are utilizing, the companies are utilizing this value to understand your preferences, what you need, and then develop products and services that kind of match that, right? And meet those needs. This is going to grow and has continued to grow for the last number of years, especially, right? As we get more and more into our technology, our ways of paying have changed, right? I mean, for the most part, I hardly ever use cash anymore, unless it's something like someone working on the house and you're paying in cash, but there's very little, very, very little need. Yeah, no, I try to and people won't take it. So, yeah, and a lot of cases they don't take it. I know uh, on flights now, if you want to order a drink or food, right, they're not allowed to take cash. They can only take a credit card. It's interesting and it's amazing to me how it, I guess, five years ago, this wasn't the case, right? This is something that's sort of really just ramped up over the last maybe five to 10 years, definitely, wherein you don't need an ATM anymore. You don't need cash for most transactions. And so where this is all going is I think loyalty and sort of the ways of transacting, right? We've seen so many new entries in the market that are now taking credit cards that are now able to accept ways of payment and sort of disrupting the traditional ways of banking and finance, right? Venmo and Square and all of these new ways of Zelle, right? I'm always paying people with Zelle if if it's someone that I'm, I'm just working with. I think these are going to continue to grow and there's going to continue to be disruptors to the traditional forms of banking and finance, right? But this is something that the industry has been preparing for for quite a while. And there's so much innovation in the space. There's so many ways of sort of cutting out the time needed to do all these different types of transactions. And it's just getting more and more optimized, right? Crypto is very interesting, right? I think it has sort of, I think there's a few different aspects of it, right? I think when you think of cryptocurrency itself, right? There's, it's a different type of thing than if you're thinking about the crypto technology that has been developed, right? So cryptocurrency, I mean, if you're speculating, if you're a risk taker, you can buy Bitcoin, you can buy Ethereum and you can hold it or you can trade it. And I think most people think about that as a very risky type of thing right now, but there is a potential future for this as to where it's going, right? As a digital currency. And I'm not sure if it's Bitcoin. I'm not sure if it's a US dollar that's digital in some way, at some point, maybe that happens. But from the the thought perspective, right, it makes sense to me that at some point, there's less physical assets and more digital assets that we're tracking, right? But when you think about the technology that's needed to sort of do this behind the scenes, there's a number of technologies that are needed to track everything, to make sure it's secure, 
to give access to folks, right? And then to also attach certain items to it. I think there are these things called smart contracts in which you can attach certain lists of things that go along with this particular asset. I think if you remember some of the the pictures that were being sold, like digital pictures and other types of things, right? This goes along with smart contracts and other ways, right? And then you've got the blockchain. And the blockchain is a great way of securely tracking ownership of assets, right? Or securely tracking where something is, right? So there's so many different possibilities and applications for this technology that it's a massive growth area, regardless of where the price of Bitcoin is, right? Regardless of where Ethereum is, because that's more the the currency side of it, the speculation side of it. The technology that was developed to sort of enable all of this is where I think the future is, right? And where a lot of us are focusing, right, is on those technologies and making our products better for it, integrating those technologies into our products so that you can track from a supply chain perspective, where something sits, where it is now, where it's going next, has it been received, all of those types of things, right? Blockchain enables that and also the crypto technologies that were developed enable that very much. And I guess as these technologies sort of emerge, you sort of have to ask yourself the question, what's the potential impact on society, the environment, how are we going to govern this and regulate this? So, you know, it's something that can be thought about is emerging and evolving, just not after the fact. That's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of focus was on sort of creating Bitcoin and how much energy it consumes to create it. Right. And there are a lot of other ways of doing that from other different types of currencies. But I think we have to focus on sort of also the technology itself, right? That's enabling it. So if you take away from the currency side of it, you think about the regulators, you think about how they're going to hone in on sort of making sure this industry is fair and secure for everyone, just like in the banking industry, right? I mean, it's the yeah. same thing, right? It's the exact same thing. So there's a number of focuses in that way. And then there's a number of focuses on ways of offsetting the energy, the carbon use, the footprint that's needed for all this technology. But You think about this just from the perspective of where technology is going, right? We are all going to have to figure out a better way of producing electricity, a better way of generating energy, a better way of taking care of our waste. (laughs) This goes hand in hand, right? As we sort of get more and more efficient with what we want to do and more innovation comes out, we've got to figure out how it's affecting our environment, how it's affecting our society as a whole. So yeah, the more computer power we need, the more we need to think about these things. Yeah, I think it's interesting how I see companies spending a lot of time in their reporting, looking at their environment as far as their operations. Uh, I see in the social category, you know, the inclusion and diversity and people, how safety and how everything that's sort of involving their employees and and how they operate in a community with governance that already was always something important within 10Ks and within and reports and things. But what interests me is I don't see as much about ESG in their products. And I think that some of that becomes the greenwashing more than anything else. And I also feel like how 
I see some companies really going after and understanding that this ESG investing is driving and providing a value for real innovation of their products. And yet I see a lot of companies holding on to sort of where they are with their products. How do you feel about that? I think it's difficult to measure a lot of these characteristics, right? I mean, I think the E is a lot easier. The S and the G, social and the governance aspects are a bit more opaque. They're a bit more difficult, right? I like to say everything that's measurable is important, but not everything that's important is easily measurable because there's a lot of things about social and governance that, you know, it's a bit harder to quantify. At the same time, I think the more companies really sort of try to benchmark themselves against their peers, right? If you're in a specific industry, if you're, you know, a certain size, it's expected that you're going to have a diverse workforce. It's expected that you're going to have diverse representation on your board in the governance perspective, right? These are things that are very important to most of us. And it also makes them better companies, right? So it's not just sort of a how I feel kind of thing, right? It actually has been proven by a number of studies, right? And I remember I looked at So that way you don't cherry pick. I looked at like studies of studies, right? And there have been studies that literally have taken hundreds of specific studies to look for sort of what they uh, concluded. And overwhelmingly, the companies that integrate all aspects of ESG into their strategy have performed better than those that didn't. So yeah, I think for companies, they really need to sort of wake up and embrace this change, right? I mean, if it were me, Starting a new company, I would want as diverse a workforce as possible, you know, the most opinions to sort of help me decide the best strategy to develop for my company and for my product, right? I would also want to understand how that product is affecting society, right? Am I creating something that is creating social benefit in some way? How is it benefiting the communities around me or detracting, right? And how do you make those changes to sort of adjust? When you see something is happening, it's a difficult fight wire, you know, balancing act (laughs) to go through. Yeah, let me build on that a little bit. What advice would you give a small startup bank in terms of embarking on an ESG journey? Yeah, just be open, open to new technology, open to innovation, and just have all those things I just spoke about in mind, right? Because I feel like as a small bank, right, you're really serving mostly your community, really know your community, really understand their needs, understand their goals, right? And I think you've seen some really successful startups in the space, right, that have focused on getting rid of any sort of fees for the community that they serve, right? Really focusing in on sort of the folks that live and work near to this particular bank and how they are best needed to utilize a bank. What are sort of their specific needs, not just the general needs of the public from a banking perspective? FIS is really, we're such a large company, right? We have solutions for pretty much every facet of a large to small business. So depending on their needs, right, there are a lot of things that can be customized from the technology perspective that would help them to be more efficient to do their business, right? And that's kind of what we pride ourselves on is sort of serving all customers, right? With yeah. Them, yeah. Top to bottom. I'm curious, uh, with the recent bank failures of SVB, Signature, and now First Republic, has this changed the behavior and psyche of 
the consumer or business? Have you noticed? I don't think so, right? Because I think that if you saw a systemic failure, which I don't think we're seeing, you know, from everything I've read, these were very much sort of one-off. Just think of it as a business, right? That made bad decisions, right? They weren't prepared from what I've read for the changes in the economy that have happened with inflation, with consumer demand, et cetera. And they didn't make adjustments to their business as a result. But this is a good example. It's going to be a great business school case study of what went wrong, right? I mean, could they have done? What should they have done and why? And maybe also to look at some other banks out there that did do the right thing, did make changes to the way they operate and what worked out for them. So, but systemically, I don't think, in my view, this was a failure. I think it's more sort of specific ones to point to. Yeah, I was just curious on, in terms of trust and confidence in your bank, I mean, people fled to the big banks, right? It's well-documented how much money came out of of these mid-sized banks into the big banks, so. Yeah, it's understandable. I think people tend to sort of react the news in that way. If you you think that there may be there may be a small chance that your money is not secure, you may want to go to a larger bank that you feel more comfortable with. I don't think we're we've seen that in droves. I think it was just a kind of a gut reaction. But it remains to be seen. I think it's probably going to be led lead it's probably going to lead to more regulation amongst the smaller and community banks to make sure that they are prepared once again, right? Being prepared is huge. It's a thing well, you know prepared and- for anything that could happen. Yeah. And what's the responsibility of the board? The board has so many oversight committees that are supposed to prevent, in theory, these type of things from happening. Well, also uh, the accounting firms, right? The audit. Well, the uh, article uh, I read in Financial Times this morning, KPMG was the auditor for all the banks, all the banks that failed. So it's a failure on them as well, right? They're signing off on things and it's easy to point blame after something happens, but it's harder to it before it's going to happen or while it's happening. So, you know, that's what the regulators will try to figure out as to what are the marking, what are the signs that we need to fix here for something that's about to fail so it doesn't happen again. But all this stuff makes us stronger, right? You remember the banking crisis, financial crisis, all of that made banks capitalized and better able to withstand events like inflation and things like this, right? So this is all going to make this stronger in the long term, I think. I wanted to ask you about short-term versus long-term in management, because there are all these studies out there that say long-term value is definitely built paying attention and performing well on your ESG data. But at the same time, you see companies like, for instance, ExxonMobil has a new CEO who's very young and dynamic. And is basically out there saying uh, on his earnings call that they are going to stop or invest less in renewable energies and are going after the old-fashioned fossil fuels that we need to get rid of our dependence on it because, quote-unquote, a lot of money is to be made short-term in the next four or five years. Well, where do you find that balance between the short-term and long-term value? And how do we hold these companies to accountability of their ESG commitments 
um, that they voiced and that they're advertising that they're doing. And the reality that you still got a lot of management that wants that short-term value is rewarded for that short-term value. It's very confusing. It's difficult. And that's a great question. I don't know that I'll have the perfect answer, but I think when you think about it or when I think about it, I think about companies that if I invest in a company, of course, I want to have a good return on my investment, right? So it's you want to try to separate the short term and the long term from, hey, I'm picking this company because I think it's a good investment in my view. I'm more of a long-term investor, but there are short-term investors. And of course, they're going to want to get paid on their investment as well. For ExxonMobil and for others, right, that are in that industry where they can choose between something that's sort of a dirty asset and a cleaner and alternative, it's difficult because right now it may be more beneficial to them from a performance perspective to focus on some of the things that aren't as ESG friendly. Until there's regulation that's going to sort of push to disclose transparently all of the things that they're doing, as well as disclose the choices that they're making, right? It's really going to be up to the the stakeholders. It's going to be up to the investors. It's going to be up to the advocates to sort of tell them, hey, we don't want you doing this, even if it may be more profitable in the short term, right? And at some point, the CEO is going to have to listen to them, right? So it's difficult. Would I, you know, personally, if I look at a company and they say they're investing in oil and fossil fuels, it's probably not something I want to invest in, but that's my personal choice, right? That doesn't mean that everyone's going to make that same decision, but I'm going to look for an alternative that I'm more connected to. But I don't think that's going to stop a lot of short-term investing goals. They also, as a CEO and as an executive, right, they have metrics they need to hit as well to be considered successful. And so they're sort of conflicting in that sense. The answer is regulation. It's going to start pushing it and investor and stakeholder advocacy that are always going to sort of coalesce. I also think uh, the cost of capital. Certainly the biggest companies will be able to not be as concerned about that than the smaller mid-side caps and small caps. But what's happening with ESG is that's part of the evaluation. And if people who are paying attention and performing well on those ESG factors start being able to really get financing in a lot more economical place and get their bonds issued easier and more proficiently or prolifically too, maybe that's something that then will put a pressure on some of those CEOs. Yeah, I mean, perhaps. I mean, the economic environment we live in, right, does sort of guide the choices. And so as inflation eases, as there are alternative mechanisms for borrowing and investing, right, that sort of changes a lot of the decision making. Yeah, it's hard to say, right? There's always going to be opportunities on both sides. And it's really going to be just up to the company to decide from its strategy and perspective, right, what makes the most sense for them. I just hope that they choose a more green approach if it's kind of balanced, right? If, if you have the choice and it makes sense, right, the green approach is probably the better approach, especially going forward, right? Because as we economically or as things change, right, cycles change all the time, right? But like destructive nature of the things that we're doing to our planet and to our resources will have economic effects as well. So at some point, you're actually destroying value 
by choosing the short-term easy approach that may not be as great. Think about it that way. Richard, this is kind of a wrap-up question. So it's five years from today. We're doing this podcast with you again. What's our topic? (laughs) Oh, that's a good one. I would hope that we've kind of come through the hurdles here and sort of regulation and understanding what's needed and what needs to be reported. I think, to be honest, going back to the AI thing, right, I think our topic is going to be more about, about how we are managing this new world where AI is a massive part of everything that we do. It's going to be just everywhere, right? Not just in the products that we use, but our day-to-day interactions with things. I hope that we're not interacting with robots in the sense of we go to the the restaurant and it's a robot, but you never know. It's going so fast. AI is going to be the big thing in the next few years. You're going to see. Terrific. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Very informative. This is really great. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Sustainable Minds wherever you get your podcasts. And please do live a review if you like what we're doing. It helps others discover the show. And of course, we want more listeners. If you want to find out more about how we can help you evolve your corporate brand, culture, and ESG, head to bakerbrand.com. See you on the next episode of Sustainable Minds, exploring the interplay of corporate brand, core beliefs, and ESG.